HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a hospitality platform that empowers restaurants to own their presence, profits, and relationships directly through their website. Opening soon, listeners save 40% on the setup fee at getbento.com slash opening soon. That is G-E-T-B-E-N-T-O dot com forward slash opening soon. This week on Meet and 3, we're delighting in the creepy, the spooky, the skin-crawling aspects of food history and culture. Give yourself over to man's more hedonistic tendencies and you wouldn't be making it to the great beyond. The Sin Eater's job was to ensure that you did. In modern horror, audiences have been captivated by the isolation, mystery, and terror of rural life. And so one of these preparations is, is actually taking oak bark stuffing it into a cow skull and burying that cow skull in a creek for a year. I would argue that their evil went hand in hand with their marketing strategy. I'm not saying they had an excuse, but in order to make bananas work, they were deluded. They had to do these terrible things. Listen to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. soon on Heritage Radio Network. I am your host, Jenny Goodman. And I'm Alex McCreary. And if you're just tuning in to Opening Soon, we are a weekly show that walks you through the steps of opening restaurants. We're talking to some of the world's greatest chefs, restaurateurs, vendors, and consultants who help take your dream into getting those doors actually open. Yes. And today we're talking about common mistakes uh, plaguing restaurateurs and how to avoid them. Uh, there's a saying that goes, um, smart people learn from their mistakes, but wise people learn from other people's mistakes. Uh, one of the most common resources we hear guests shout out time and time again is simply other people, friends, coworkers, colleagues, uh, superiors, mentors, vendors, you know, the list goes on and on people, you know, within your industry, people in your family, everyone you can access for any information, uh, is always the best resource. Our guest today has been mentioned on many occasions for their guidance in helping to avoid the costly and time-consuming mistakes through opening uh, by way of proper planning. Uh, so we're super excited to have David Helbron from Hel Helbron and Levy in the studio with us. 
Hi. Hi. So if you don't know David, he is a founding partner and chairman of Helbron Levy in New York City. It's one of the most preeminent hospitality law firms here. And over the past 15 years, David has helped hundreds of restaurants actually open their doors and some of them close, which we'll talk about. Um, And prior to founding the firm, David opened and owned Pyramid Coffee Company, a multi-unit coffee bar cafe. So he's not only a lawyer, but also an owner operator, um, has that experience to share. And he's a lifelong entrepreneur. So welcome, David, to the show. I'm so happy to be here. We're Thank happy you. to have you. Um, it's always fun to have, you know, once our get, when our guests start, when we hear something over and over again, it's really fun to have that resource on the show. So we're, we're super pumped to pick your brain and hopefully gain some nuggets for our, our listeners. Um, but tell us, where do you start when you're working with clients and, you know, how do you ensure they're ready for you? Well, clients come to us at uh, the beginning stages, usually, of opening a restaurant and Oftentimes, the beginning stage is a front of house guy and a chef get together uh, from a, a nice restaurant and decide that they want to do it on their own. They've seen it work for the guy they're working for. They're sick of working for the man. So they come into my office and say, hey, we've got this great idea. We want to open up a, a local Brooklyn restaurant, 40, 50 seater. Uh, we want to raise some money. And, and how can you help us? Right. And is there something um, we talked about? Is there like questions you walk them through to sort of suss out, you know, are you ready? Is this the right move for you? Is there anybody you talk off the ledge and you're like, hey, go back to the drawing board? Oh, I put them through the uh, through the ringer. Honestly, (laughs) Um, I ask them a series of questions to determine if they are actually ready to open. Um, The worst thing that you can possibly do if you're thinking about opening up a restaurant is going unprepared. Yeah. So so we ask them a list of questions. I always ask them what the background is in the industry. This allows me to gauge their expertise. Sometimes you'll get a guy who's like, oh, I've been a GM for 20 years and I've run multi-unit restaurants and, you know, I'm a real stud when it comes to thinking about the the numbers of a restaurant. Sometimes you get a chef who's just worked as a sous chef for six months in a a local diner and he wants to open up a Michelin-starred restaurant. So, you know. We get all kinds, but the the questions that I like to know is, and the answers that I like to know is, why are you doing this, first of all? I think the philosophy that you have is really important. Are you doing it to make money? Are you doing it because you think it's a really romantic idea to Mm -hmm. open a restaurant? Are you doing it because you're a creative person and you want an outlet for your creativity? And, And there's all good reasons. Is there a right answer to that question? There's not a right answer. The wrong answer is that I want to make a lot of money really quickly. <laughs> I know. <laughs> really quickly right. is the key. Yeah. So what do you say to the people who are like, I want to make a lot of money? You're like, go find something else to do or... You know, Wall Street's not far. Right. David's based in Lower Manhattan. Restaurants are along. Live, I just point, point out the window You're like, and I say out. it's three blocks south. Get a job down there. Are people coming to you business plan in hand or is that something that you help people along with as well or... Most people have a business plan, and they come in a lot of different forms, Mm -hmm. the same way a menu comes in a lot of different forms. Some people will kind of throw uh, a a chef's loose leaf at me and say, here's my business plan. And sometimes those read really well. I need a little zhuzhing to get going. Mm -hmm. But And sometimes the most professional-looking business plan with the binders and the tabs and all all of those things are terribly written and uh, not based in any kind of reality. Right. So, yeah, we, we like to see a business plan before we start advising people. It also lets us know if they are realistic people. So tell us about 
you know, what are you thinking for the real, like what numbers are you specifically looking for to understand if somebody is like even in the right ballpark? Uh, really just kind of the basic calculations that we always talk about in the industry. How big of a restaurant do you want to open? Where's it going to be? What's your concept? And then start talking some numbers with them. Yeah. Right? If you're going to open up a 40-seat restaurant and you're telling me you think you're going to do $6 million in the first year, <laughs> I'm going to bring you back to reality and let you know that might not happen. Right. Yeah. We, we talked a little bit about, you know, the romanticism of opening these small restaurants before, you know, over lunch and in what people are expecting from them. So you know, how do you set expectations of are you actually going to make money on this project or, or not? Where do you help guide people there? Well, we talk about the industry standard numbers. These days, it used to be years ago and when I was in the industry, you could think about making between 15 and 20% net profit mm -hmm. on your sales. So if you had a business that was doing a million dollars, 150 or $200,000 might be your take-home pay, not too shabby. It's you can kind of live off that. Right. Depends on your number of partners too, right? So that's one partner can live on that, but if three partners are splitting up this forty seat restaurant, then it's only forty grand a pop, right? That's, that's right. Doesn't and go quite as far in New York. And that was also back then. <laughs> and so now this fifteen to twenty percent has become you know, ten percent you're an all star. Wow. Right. And wow. most people fall between that five and ten percent. Wow. Um, and, and when you think about how much work you have to do and how many uh, Roberta's pizza pies you have to sell <laughs> to make some money. Slinging a lot of pies. You know, it becomes pretty onerous. Right. Is there something you see, you know, when your clients come in for like time and time again, where you're like, okay, they're going to, they're going to make this work or, you know, it's like, is there a telltale, some like quality or trait that you just really know it's going to, it's going to work? I think the people that I've seen be most successful, and this is over f 15 years of running this law firm and helping people open and grow restaurants um, and 30 years in the industry is the people who have a, a certain level of humility mm -hmm. and lack of hubris, people who understand that they don't know everything and that there are other people to help them along the way on yeah. the basis of your show, right. really. Yep. Right. Um, those are the people uh, who have a chance at success. They want to learn. They're hungry to learn. They know what they don't. No, and they, they're happy to learn it right. also. Because you don't find lack of work ethic in our industry. No. Everybody's got a pretty solid yeah. work ethic. Not like that throughout the country, throughout every industry, but certainly in hospitality. Yeah. Yeah, they're ready to grind it out, but you have to ask for help. That's very yeah, true. You've got to ask for help. I feel like most of the people that are probably coming to you are that person, right? Because, I mean, if, if, you're, if you know everything, do they, they don't need to come and have the legal guidance from you, I guess, but... Um, yeah, that's that's a tough one, and it kind of goes back to something we say every single time is focus, and I think it definitely comes out in every show, and the idea that you can focus on one thing but be willing to ask for help on all the other things that are going to take it to open a restaurant. When are most people coming coming to you? Are they coming with business plan in hand right at the very beginning? Can people jump into your office? You know, once they've had partners, there's a lease signed already. Where do you where do you like to be? Where are people coming most often? When is too late? Well, we have people coming in all along the timeline, not just first timers, but people who have opened two and three restaurants and really want to to blow it out, maybe nationwide or open up some different kind of concept in the city. But the ones who come in for the first time uh, are all over the place. Honestly, we love to see them 
right when they finish their business plan. That is the best time because we can then start to lay out what it's going to look like mm -hmm. for the next five stages of opening a restaurant to them, give them the overview, and put them in a framework where they'll be able to operate and succeed. The later you come to us, the harder it is for us to get you on the right track if you've making a mis if you've taken a misstep. Right. How many people, so you have people coming to you with like some ideas and some numbers and you, ru you run them through a little bit of the ringer, like asking these questions. How many of them do you turn, turn away and how many of them come back? Well, turn away is a little harsh. <laughs> turn away. Right? <laughs> how many, how do you recommend different directions? <laughs> oh, there you go. Like Alex dissuade some people sometimes. <laughs> I, the, the most sad thing in the world is to see someone who has a dream, um, but who's lacking either in wherewithal or finances and yeah. to see them take what little they may have or what they've saved up over time and throw it away. So I would much rather gently coax somebody out of making a mistake. He's not going to throw you out of the office and scream at you and you're not going to run away crying. <laughs> right. However, people have left take the crying. Cues. Oh, really? <laughs> they have, but of joy. Crying of joy. Joy from thank you for saving me from making the biggest right. mistake I've ever made. But yeah, we like to get them in early uh, and set them up right. And, set and that's also the setting them up, not just legally, but setting them up with people like you and good contractors and the right architect. And the, one of the biggest mistakes we see are people who surround themselves with professionals who do not have experience in hospitality. Yeah, tell yeah. us more about that. It's like they, oh, my friend's an architect who builds offices. I'll just use them classic, kind of thing. Classic example. Yeah. So what happens to those people when they start their build out? And they build their kitchen. They don't know how to pitch the floor so it goes to the, you know, the to drain. the drain in yeah. the middle you of the grease traps kitchen. and every. They don't know right. what a, exactly. They don't know what a grease trap is. They don't know what kind of electric and power supply they need, or how big their water line needs to be, right? Et cetera, et cetera. And so then they're in the middle of the build out, and inevitably, they will find that the person that they hired doesn't know what they're doing, and right. then they have to retrace their steps, and it costs them a lot of time and money. A lot of money. Dig those floors back up and put new plumbing in or something, it's, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's happened. crazy. It's what are some of the other biggest, like, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have um, within their business plan with either their, like, financing or um, what do you find that people are most often missing? I think people don't understand um, how hard it is to make the kind of money that they need to make. So... Let's use that $4 million a year restaurant. That's a nice, buzzy, successful Manhattan 50-seater. Mm -hmm. right. And you've got two people who are partners. And you've got people to pay back, your investors. At the end of the year, maybe you've got $150,000 to split up between two people. Right. So that's $75,000 a, a person. And we've seen a lot of partnerships break up because they just didn't know how to predict what their income would be. And at the end of the day, it's New York City. Right. you got to pay rent. Right. Right. You have to have a life. You have a family. It's $75,000 isn't going to get you anywhere. Right. So you need three or four, four million dollar restaurants mm -hmm. in order to, yeah. Exactly. Or, or you're using that first restaurant as a springboard right. or a platform to open up some other things. And if you want to build a restaurant group, that's fine. As right. long as you know going in that you might have to, you know, bear down for the first couple of years, maybe take less money than you're used to, as long as you know that in the future you're building towards something bigger, then you'll be okay. Interesting. And so we, and we talked a little bit about this too when we were, when we were having lunch is like, 
you, you hear about exit strategy a lot, not normally in our industry, but in tech and in, you know, and the rest of the rest of the world. Um, but you were mentioning that you recommended thinking about an exit strategy from in the beginning. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, exit strategy to me has kind of a, a funny, it's kind of a misnomer, right? I, I hate when people walk in and say, I've got an exit strategy <laughs> for my restaurant. Right. That seems strange. It does seem strange. I understand if you're a, a tech entrepreneur and you want to yeah. have an exit strategy. Right. But for a restaurateur, it's kind of like, I'm building a restaurant. I want it to last for a while. I don't yeah, have an exit strategy. Right. What It's more like a doomsday strategy. Oh, right? okay. Doomsday. We're going meaning. there. We're going to doomsday. <laughs> yeah. Doomsday Come strategy. Come to doomsday. Meaning like, oh shit, it's not working. Right. Um, I, I'm three years in. We're not making any money. Things have changed in the city. People don't have the same taste as they used to, delivery, all that stuff. And I want to get out of this. Right. So we talk a lot about how to get out of it. And one way to get out of it is to talk to your landlord when you're negotiating a lease, for example, and make sure you have something called the good guy clause. It allows you to give notice to the landlord and get out of the personal guarantee on your lease and close the business. Right. Yeah. And that's something that's really common in New York, but it's not, so is it as common outside of New York? I or? haven't seen it be common. It should be. It should be, yeah. Could you imagine, let's just say in that, in that same scenario, you've got a 15-year lease, yeah. and in year two, things aren't going well, and you don't have this good guy clause. You're stuck for 13 years. Yeah, with this 13 years bad luck. Trying to figure yeah. out. Of, yeah. of a judgment against you for, you know, 13 months, 13 years of rent. Right. Right. I think a, a note that you made uh, over lunch before too about the, um, the closing of a restaurant, like not and the idea of failure, I thought was important. Do you want to share that as well? That it's not really um, that trying something and finding out that it doesn't work is not the end of the world. It's, you know, Jenny and I know having gone through opening and closing a restaurant in six months, and it was like you, like we talked about it, this was my, that was my dream, and it definitely felt crushed at the end of it. Um, but the idea that, you know, you tried something, it didn't work, and now I'm gonna try something else. As long as you're properly planned of how to get out of it, um, then it's not the end of the world. Yeah, people fail all the time. Right. Um, I've had many failures in my life, and every time I've had a failure, I've gotten myself up and, and learned something from it to the point now where I've used all those failures in my success. Yeah. And if I didn't have the failures, I would not be what I consider to be uh, successful. Right. And successful to me means something different than someone else. It's not necessarily about money, but it's about building something that you can be proud of. And so when restaurateurs close their restaurants, oftentimes they're very proud of what they've done. They should be, yeah. And they should stick with that yeah. and understand that, okay, maybe you weren't prepared from a business person's point of view, right? Or you right. didn't understand the economics the way you should have, or you made a miscalculation early on. Learn from that lesson and go open up another place. And you I've seen the, without a business plan. Exactly. <laughs> could, be, could be could any be any number of things. <laughs> do you it. offer grief counseling for the we people do. that can't quite we handle? Do. Uh, in fact, <laughs> clients who are closing usually have my cell phone number. Yeah. Uh, I don't really give it out to anybody, but I do give it out to, to people. <laughs> oh who are God! So you know when your cell phone's ringing, it's like not good news. You're usually, like, oh gosh. Usually not. Oh man. Yeah. It's pretty sad. I mean, it, it's sad to to see somebody um, not kind of fulfill their dream right 
and, and that's okay because you can get over that. The sadder part is that some of these people end up losing a lot yeah. as far as like money goes, yeah. right? I mean, we can all get past a failure. You lose the World Series, you come next year, you play in your team, maybe you win the World Series in a right. couple of years. You lose your, mo- your money, you lose mom Mom's and dad's money, house. Like yeah. A lot of things could go down the tubes depending yeah, on how up, you set up your business. You end up moving to Mexico. Honestly, <laughs> we've, we've seen it. Really? <laughs> you've seen it? You've seen Not a bad to place to retire. <laughs> I like that. When shit heads south, like literally heads south. Yeah, I like it. I'm bank. like, no, I'm like, Mexico's yeah. fine other than the <laughs> kidnappings and the drug <laughs> What are a couple of the, um, the things that people are, you know, I don't that are you know less knowledgeable about when it comes to running the business like labor such as that it's hard to know what it's going to be like to run a business with 20 or 30 or 40 employees running around especially restaurant people um and there's almost no what's that i said especially Especially today in today's climate yeah it's very hard to prepare for and no one's ready for it Right. Um, it's a different world. When employees today quit, they go to their plaintiff's attorney and they tell their plaintiff's attorney that they've been microaggressed because <laughs> the head chef right, or the executive chef said that their hair looked nice today. Right. Right? They're yeah. tr- then they're in trouble. All of a sudden, they're being sued because they're microaggressors. Yeah. Right. I shit you not, this is the kind of thing that, that is happening out there in the world. So how can people, small businesses, restaurants, everybody, how can we protect ourselves? You can protect yourselves by, and, and this is not meant to be a plug, but hire, hire a lawyer who knows what they're doing. Yeah. Have a lawyer sit down with you and say, here's your employee handbook, here are the rules, have them train you, have them train your management staff, have them talk to the staff about what this environment is like now in so the world. So just handing out handbooks is not enough, you need to actually... We, teach people what's inside we used to do that yeah hey here's a handbook yes yeah, this is it. <laughs> sign it on page 25 see right. you later see you next year orientation right. was in the right. break room right and it was five minutes before uh-huh. your first shift yeah right. and it was sign these papers right. give us your social security number and your yeah and your w-2 and see and you later we're yeah. all good yeah now it's you have to sit down and you have to explain and teach and and look it, it, it does make our place, our places better places to work. For right. sure. And everything's clear, but yeah. But it's a lot to know. But it's a lot to know. And it, by the way, if you're in New York City, there was mandatory sexual harassment training that had to be completed for every business, basically, right? right? By the end of October. So yeah. So do it. So do it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. And it, for, um, and for people, you know, with employees, it's so hard because it's like you want to be a good business owner, you want to be a good restaurateur, and you want to provide a great place to work. And it's not necessarily, you know, there's other attorneys out there who are like just looking to be litigious. It, it's, it's heartbreaking to see our clients get those letters from someone who's worked for them for a long time, who they think they've been good bosses to right. and provided a good income or source of income for and then you get a letter from an attorney making you sound like a, a, an ogre. Like right. you're, the, you're the worst boss on earth all of a sudden, a horrible boss. Yeah. We talked about this too at lunch. But you were saying that even if, you know, the initial thing that was the complaint is not proven, but if there is some other small piece proven like, a, you know, uh, tax wasn't filed correctly on your W-2 or something, any, if the lawyer can prove, if the plaintiff's lawyer can prove anything... 
right, then the attorney fees are, are still your burden. Is that correct? This is, this is the dirty little secret of plaintiff's lawyers. And there's a handful of them who have made a very nice living and a career out of suing restaurants. Right. And what they do is they will talk to anybody who's been fired and listen to any legitimate complaint. They will ask that person for some documentation. Let me see your last pay stub. Let me see what documentation the restaurant provided you. And if they find that you made one mistake, you didn't hand out a, a form, right, That a wage acknowledgement form that says, I understand I make this much money, and they signed it, then you have lost. When I say lost, it means that whatever kind of judgment the plaintiff gets against you is going to pale in comparison to the attorney's fees that you're going to have to pay, not only to your own attorney, but to the other attorney. There's a law that says if the plaintiff wins, the defendant, the restaurant, has to pay the attorney fee of the plaintiff. So we had a case once where it was one of these wage cases, and it was just like I described. And I think it was a six or $7,000 judgment for the plaintiff. And then the attorney's fees were $150,000. Oh. So the attorney won. <clears throat> attorney, That's who attorney won. Ones and the attorney won. The attorney won. And gives That's your entire a bad year's name. profit it's on your $4 million restaurant. Or yeah. two. So yeah. now you got to make up that deficit. And now you're really in a hole. Yeah. Yeah. Employee handbook. Employee handbook. That's Get the it. word of the day. <laughs> Employee handbook is my key takeaway. And don't away. just download it off the internet. Make sure that <laughs> Make you have sure. somebody. Yeah, don't do legal hospitality. Zone. Don't do any of that stuff. It's terrible. <laughs> All right, we're gonna take, on, on that note, we're going to take a super quick break, and we'll be back with more interview. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, helping restaurants own their presence, profits, and relationships directly through their website. Pete Turner opened Illegal Pete's in 1995 to bring mission-style burritos to the local college students. Illegal Pete's has grown to nine locations in Colorado and two in Arizona. But Pete, a big music fan, wanted to offer more than burritos. He launched the Starving Artist Program, where he gives touring bands a free meal when they come through town. Illegal Pete's is one of 5,000 restaurants that drives high margin revenue directly through their website, thanks to Bento Box. Visit getbento.com slash opening soon today to get 50% off of your new website setup fee. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe, taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Tickets available now at heritageradionetwork.org gala. 
Okay, so we're back chatting with um, hospitality legal consultant David Helbron of Helbron Levy, um, and he's really, you know, I'm going to lose sleep tonight, but that's okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's really giving us some great wisdom. So one thing, um, I'm, the, I, I'm the Freddy Krueger of the, <laughs> of the industry. You're he's the reality like a, check, which I think a lot check. of people need, yeah. and it's it's a great service. Yeah, just like a little anecdote. Alex and I actually sent one of our friends to David. A about five years ago, who was a marketing guy and was thinking about opening a restaurant and um, just because he wanted to have a place to take his kids for baseball after baseball games. And he came back to us and said, I've been scared out of it because David asked me if I like cleaning toilets. <laughs> 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 and I was like, but it's true. That's any business owner though. But I, I love that. Anyways. So um, one thing I think that's, we get questions about too, is like financing and fundraising. And because David, you see businesses from the beginning and um, you know, are they, when they're starting from this point of view, tell us a little bit about where you think people have, where you've seen people be successful from fundraising and how much they, they actually need to raise. Well, it's important to first identify how much money you need to raise. And you'll do that through having someone who knows how to write a restaurant business plan, write that business plan. Right. Uh, Because it's not enough to just kind of guess as to what your opening costs are going to be, you actually have to go line by line, item by item, and and figure it out. So you start there, and then you add about 50% to that. Yes, I did say 50%. That's 5-0, everybody. 5-0. 5-0. And and I got that number through a, a variety of methods, one of which is just seeing thousands of businesses open in the city, and the other was having... Uh, six of my clients who have opened up over 50 restaurants sitting around a table with me one day, and I asked them that pointed question. And I said, now that you've built out all these restaurants, guys, when you put together your budget, how much of a contingency do you do you put on top of that? And the number that they all said they'd be comfortable with is 50. So even a successful entrepreneur, restaurant owner is still going to add 50% to make sure... Yep. Recovered. So you can always have more money in the bank, right? Like, What's the worst that happens? Right. You raise too much money from your investors and you have some <laughs> extra money in right. the bank. That's so true. And so you yeah. give it back. Right. What happens if you're 50 short? You're 50 short. Well, imagine how that conversation goes. Right. So you've got these investors who have put their faith into you and have given you their money. And then as you're in the middle of build-out, you have to go back to them and say, um, hey, guys, I'm a, I'm a little short. Right. right. How are you going to feel as an investor? Not so, not so right. hot. Right, you're going to be shaky. You're going to yeah. be shaky. Um, so you have to do that first. You have to yeah. make sure you have enough money. What types, we talked a little bit about this too, but what types of res, what types of investors are we looking for? Are we looking for, you know, mom and dad? Are there certain people that we should be going to for, for money? The ideal person is um, a multi-billionaire <laughs> who thinks you are the greatest chef in the Someone world. Someone with a suitcase of cash <laughs> in your restaurant. And who says, you know what, kid? I believe in I you. I believe in you, yeah. Pay me back when you pay me back. And if you make it work, I got tons more where this came from. Okay. And I'm going to help you build a restaurant group. And we're going to open up a million restaurants together. From the reality check guy, how often does that happen? <laughs> That's, you know... One in a one in a hundred thousand. Okay. Yeah, right. It does happen. They do exist, but they're unicorns. But like you said, you start there and work work backwards. You work backwards. The the, the least amount of investors is the best. Right. Um, and what we have found time and time again is that those who invest the least complain the most. Mm. 
So you have a group of 10 or 15 investors and everyone's in for 100,000 and a couple of your friends invested 10. Right. Guess, guess who's calling you every day? Right. They're calling you every day to see how's their investment doing. And it, it'll drive you crazy. Right. right. And, and we talked a little bit about this too, you know, because so a lot of people put it into their business plans and you hear like standard timeline is two years to pay people back. But in reality, what's that really looking like these yeah, days? Nobody does two years. <laughs> I mean, you'd have to open up like the, the hottest restaurant in New York and just be selling tons of liquor. Right. <laughs> right. With the perfect, it just, it just doesn't really happen in two years. Um, it's more like if you can pay somebody their investment back in five, mm-hmm. you're an all-star. Good for you. I mean, that's another you know sort of reality check there. If you're just finishing paying investors back after five years, then how long, you know, how long does your forty-seat restaurant need to run to have been a successful business, right? In five years, and you're just now basically personally breaking even as the as the partner owner. Um, how long of a lease do you need to be able to, to have this business go? Well, th- that's a good question. And you also ask, have to ask, what is success? Right. right. Um, if you want to open up this 40-seater and pay people back after five or six years, that's fine. They, they may make some money back, they may not. Mm-hmm. But if you're using it as a platform to open up other restaurants, to get some notoriety for yourself and to prove to the investment community that you can run a profitable space... And right. a profitable restaurant, then it then it's worth it. Right. But you can't be cashing it all in just for the one restaurant. It's not it's not going to work out. And as far as a lease goes, if if it were me, I'd ask a landlord for a hundred year lease. Wow. Start big. Go to the rest start, of the start, plan. Start, yeah. <laughs> we'll always get you out of it. There's always a way to get out of a lease. Right. 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 We have these things called good guy guarantees. We'll get you out of that. We have other ways out. But the longer the lease, the better. So if, for example, you need to sell your restaurant, you've got a lease that's got 80 years left at a really good rent. Right, because nobody wants to pick up the last three years of your lease if you have a really short lease, because then they're left dealing with the landlord to try and renegotiate or something to that degree, right? And nobody wants to negotiate with a landlord when a landlord has leverage. Right. Right. That's not fun. Right. Yeah, that's never a good position. So, so you think? Sorry, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, there's. So you feel like there's not really any additional risk added by additional years to your lease? No. And not. are landlords open to longer leases like that, or are not landlords really. looking for short? <laughs> they, they don't right. really like it. Well, because they want to get back to market rent every as soon as they can. Sometimes right? Sometimes you get an old school Brooklyn guy who will, you know, entertain a twenty year lease, but for them, the shorter the lease, the better. Right. right, they can analyze the market at the end of your five or ten years and say, "Oh wow, you know, rents have gone up." So now I can. Does ask anybody ever space. try to entice the landlord as a as a partner or take they a do. equity stake? We, we've seen that. Um, sometimes that can work. Sometimes not. Just like any investor, kind of depends on the personality of the landlord. Right. Yeah, and we talked a little bit about this too because there's definitely like lore in New York where you're like, oh, that space is a cursed space. I've seen it flip over multiple times. And what's your what's your insight into that? Um, I don't really believe in cursed spaces. I believed in cursed landlords. Yeah. And oftentimes <laughs> behind, a, behind a cursed space, you'll find a landlord who's a difficult person to right. negotiate with, who makes people get into difficult leases. And then the only people who would get into a difficult lease are going to be inexperienced operators who don't know better. And that perpetuates the curse. Right. Right. Because right? now we have operators who aren't good with a bad lease and a 
tough landlord. Tough landlord, right? And then the odds are just stacked against you. So you're gonna love your landlord? You should you set that expectation, or because the landlord is always gonna be looking to have some sort of a deal, right? I think it's important that you do like and respect your landlord. In fact, I encourage people to, the same way a landlord will vet you as a tenant, I mean, they'll ask for everything from you. Sure. References, I want to see what you've done with your life. Yeah, it's like your firstborn child. No, I'm just kidding. Things, things <laughs> like that. <laughs> you, you, should, you should ask around, because right. most landlords in this city have multiple properties. Right. So go talk to some of their tenants. Hey, how is this guy? Does he fix things that need to be fixed? Is he uh, up your butt if you're two days late with your rent? What's the story? Because right. this is somebody who is your de facto partner. Right. Right. They're yeah. going to be your partner for 10 years. years. I think people don't even think about that with your landlord. It's like they're part of your, they're a vital part of your business that you can't get rid of. It's like they are the business in a lot of ways. So right. thinking of them as a partner. Yeah, for sure. For sure. How are you feeling? Uh, how are you feeling about the outlook of the industry coming down the pike for 2020? You know, I was asked this question <laughs> last, last, last year. Last I listened year. to David's podcast oh, yeah. with uh, Jen from was... on Tech Bites. And were he you was, right? Yeah, were you right? He, well, <laughs> let's just say he's in a better, he already told me he's in a better mood today. So we're feeling a little bit rosier than, uh, Not than last year. Not only is he the reality guy, he's also the fortune teller for <laughs> hospitality. <laughs> um, I think back then I was seeing a lot of people going out of business and a lot of people complaining about what was happening with employees and what was happening with delivery, and I, I was upset by it. Right. I think things have gotten to a point where they've evened out a little bit, and now everyone understands this new landscape. So that gives me encouragement that now that we know what it is, yeah. we can kind of fight through it. How has What's delivery... Your, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I know how has delivery changed. And, how, and what do you recommend to people of what to expect from it, knowing that it's... 18% service charges and these crazy things to, to operate that business. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot of work for, for very little money. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it keeps your kitchen busy, right? Um, it, it's it's really up to each operator. Some operators find that, that it's okay to do. Others feel like they have to do it, that if they don't have a presence on Caviar or Grubhub or Seamless, that they won't be seen right. and that people won't come to their I restaurant. I hear that a lot. Is like, I feel like I have to do it. Which is not, I don't know, which is not a great place to have to be. Yeah, I, I don't think you actually do have to do it, but it's, it's, it's hard to buck a trend when your competitors are doing it. You know, the guy next door to you has the same type of Italian restaurant, and you see people coming in and out of his place, right. making deliveries, you kind of feel like you got to do it also. I just, right. I just don't know if it makes financial sense. There is no other option, right? I mean, it's either the delivery services or you just don't do delivery. I mean, does anyone do by the phone, like in-house employees? I I tried to call my local pizza place the other day. They don't even have numbers. They had a a number. And I said, hey, I'd like to order a couple of pies. And they (laughs) hung up the phone and they said, (laughs) I've got to get a manager. Hold on a second. No. They they couldn't figure out what I was talking about. They're like, this guy wants to order. He's on the phone. Do you take orders on the phone? How do you even do that? So, <laughs> so anyway, funny. we ended up getting it from 
from Caviar. Oh, bummer. Yeah. Well, we order pizza every Friday from Scars in the Lower East Side. Oh, and they answer nice. the, they're yeah. awesome and they answer the phone. So thank you, Scars, yeah. for having a phone number. And then number. we go to Caviar for Polly G's on Sundays. So. I know. Polly G's. Oh, they do Caviar? Polly no, G's. you have to the order before shop. five. I yeah. see. Before the five. The slice shop or the, the, the slice shop? shop. I see. Yeah. I live around the corner from the, the slice mm-hmm. shop. There yeah. you go. Very good. Well, you can do it the really old school way and just walk and pick it up. I went yeah, online. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's the right way to do it, right? Should we do some lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. I'm sorry, what are we doing? We're doing lightning rounds. Quick so. answer round. question, whatever is on is your mind. Is there a buzzer? No buzzer. No buzzer. Okay. No. That would be cool, though. I should, should get a buzzer. <laughs> 30 seconds or less, go. Uh, favorite part about working with you know, chefs and restaurants, or entrepreneurial chefs and restaurateurs? They're, they're my people. Yeah. They're my people. I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. I, I speak their language. I, I love being around entrepreneurs. Hardest part? Um, seeing them fail yeah. is the hardest part. Uh, dealing with some of the dramas can be a little difficult sometimes, but also kind of exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the schadenfreude. Exactly. Yeah. Um, what about your favorite business book? There were two bo- books that influenced me as a young person and made me understand that uh, there could be a life where you cut your own path as an entrepreneur. One of them was the Ben and Jerry's book called Inside Scoop. Uh-huh. And it was written by them. Um, or it, maybe it wasn't by them, but it, they participated in it. And it talked about how they kind of included socialism into their capitalistic venture, uh, which is something that I, I believe very strongly in. And they, they would share their profits amongst you know, their employees and develop a culture. This was in the 70s and 80s. Right, yeah. And I thought that was a really interesting way to go about uh, starting a business. And the the other one was a book called Growing a Business by Paul Hawken, who started uh, a bunch of different businesses, one of which was um, he he started an all-natural food place in in Vermont. I think it's now called Irwan uh, out in L.A. It's a great store. Um, And he also started a, a gardening business, like an online gardening business that turned into like this multi-million dollar thing. But his whole idea was one thing at a time. Focus. We love focus. Natural, organic. I don't feel like I'm doing this in a lightning pace right now. No, it's okay. You're good. You're good. No, it's sometimes you just need to elaborate. Okay. We're all, we're all about that. All right. Um, what about one business resource that you feel like everyone should know about? Um... Man, I, I don't I don't have one. This is where your clients shout you out, by the way. Oh, it is? Yeah, I was thinking, like, come talk to me. Come talk to I'm me. I'm a pretty good resource. Yeah. I love to talk to people about their business, and, and we always talk to people on the house, you know, like, just to see where they are and, and see if we can help them kind of understand where they're going. Um, so we're a good resource. Are there, when people come in, for example, and you guide them in a different direction, is there a resource that you send them to, or you give them a short task list of this is what should be done before when you come back? The main resource that I use is a, a guy named Jared Lewis, who owns a consulting company called Bureau Consultants, and he also owns a restaurant in Brooklyn called uh, Building on Bond, oh, cool. okay. um, and another uh, a bar. And he is an MBA, and he goes through that pro forma, that business plan, and he leaves you with exactly how much money you need to open your restaurant and how much money you can potentially make. And it's realistic, and it's true, and that's what people need to do. Cool. I like that. That is a good one. Um, Do you have a mentor or inspirational leader in the hospitality industry? I think my 
my clients are my inspiration. Uh, the people I work with are my inspiration. I, I get it from the people around me. Cool. Uh, and one thing every restaurateur should know before starting their first venture. Hire the right people who have built a lot of restaurants. If you do that, and everybody you talk to down the list, from contractors to architects to expediters to designers to lawyers to accountants, has experience in building, opening, closing restaurants, you'll, you'll be in good shape. Don't skimp. Don't yeah, we talked to, um, I forget, who was it that we were talking with? That the accountant that they used also represented lots of other restaurant businesses. Oh, so they were then yeah. filling them in on trends that were happening with other businesses and when to be worried that they weren't making money or when to you know not be worried mm-hmm. that um and that you know that that's a, a testament to having someone that's in the industry that's not just working with other types of businesses um opening soon yeah cool so we always like to shout out restaurants or bars that are opening soon what do you what do you got any anybody you want to shout out Oh my goodness! My <laughs> clients are going to be so mad. There's we have so many opening. Really coming off the top of your head. Um, and th- the the thing is, I don't know who I can say is opening and who isn't opening. Okay. Or recently opened. The PR companies get really mad at me when oh, I they do, do that. What about They're like, we just opened? got scooped by Eater. Oh, we just got scooped by Eater. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. cr- I'm really like radio about, shy, camera shy, yeah. gun shy about saying anything. What about recent opens? Anybody come to mind? Uh. There's a, yeah, I, I, you know. We can follow up I, you I can't. <laughs> Do you have any? Um, well, I was just going to shout out that Heritage Radio is having our annual gala on next Monday night, November 11th. Oh. So there'll be lots of chefs and radio people there. So if you're around and want to support Heritage, come on by. You can get tickets on Heritage Radio or cool. Heritage Radio where Network. Where is it going It's at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Oh, that's pretty. Yeah. One more quick question that's on that note. Uh, is there a good time of year that you recommend opening? Ooh. Does it matter? Is it like as soon as you can so you can start making money? or People seem to think that it's a good time to open is right um, after Labor Day. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a little openings. late. Yeah. I like to late? open in the summer and give myself a couple of months to Get your team ready. figure it out. And then when Labor Day comes around, you're... You're popping. You're popping. Yeah. But, you know... Opening in the first week of January is probably not the best idea. Right. So the bad time is first week of January. Well, it's just up to Ideal. the holiday. Like December, and, uh, too, is tough, too. Well, I think people holidays. are taxed, Oof. yeah. Yeah. People are Both taxed. Both financially and just, like, they're mentally not in it. They're ready to stay right. People in. take yeah. off January from drinking and, yeah, being exactly. celebratory. and Right. Uh, special thanks again to David for being here. Uh, we'll post a wrap-up of the show on tilletnyc.com. Um, we'll also send one to your email box if you're signed up on our list. Uh, where do we find you guys on the web, on social? Uh, we are on the web at www.helbronlevy.com, and that's Levy with an E, L-E-V-E-Y. And is there like a, a form to fill out, or can people just email you, uh, and you can set just, up an appointment? Or I, I get all the emails. There's a form. If you have a question that comes to me, I always respond to everybody. Um, so yeah. So is no it ever email. too early to get in touch? No, never. Yeah. Nope. Cool. 
So reach out to David so you can de-risk your restaurant before it ever becomes yeah, risky. <laughs> right? um, if you liked our episode today, then tune in next week. We're going to be chatting with Gabriel Stuhlman um, about... A client and friend of mine. Awesome. Lovely awesome. person. We're excited, We're to, excited have to have him on the show. We should yeah. be. We're talking about neighborhood restaurants. Is that right? Yeah. He's yep. king of the neighborhood restaurants that are just awesome. Cool. Uh, uh, here's a shout out for him. He just opened up the reopened the Great Jones Cafe. All right, we're gonna talk right. about it next yes. week. Yeah. yeah, it's got like some southern bend to it. Did I? It traditionally did. I don't yeah. know if I right. haven't been there yet. I don't know if he kept it southern. Okay. Uh, follow us on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, anywhere else you get your podcast, and don't forget to follow us on Instagram at We Are Opening Soon and at Till at NYC. Uh, give us a good rating, reviews, all that good <laughs> stuff. Thanks, David. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, guys. This was fun. Thank you. Opening Soon is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You could also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.